Hello, and welcome to the Murderosity Podcast, where we discuss all things murder, mayhem, the mysterious, and the macabre. I'm your co-host, Bob Hancock, joined on the other side by Rebel Roan. Rebel, how are you doing this week? I'm doing really good. How are you? You know, I'm I'm doing pretty well. Holidays are behind us. I'm very, very excited. This is this is a good time. So what do we have in store for our dear listeners this week? So first, I want to give a shout out to Jeff Sarvi for this case. We appreciate all of the requests that we get from our listeners, and this was one. So we just wanted to give a shout out to Jeff. Our next case takes us to Raleigh, North Carolina in 2010. So Raleigh, North Carolina. I'm sure that our listeners have figured out by now that uh, we're both very familiar with North Carolina. I was Mm -hmm. stationed in Fayetteville for a while. You've lived in the state. So Raleigh is the capital of the U.S. state of North Carolina and the seat of Wake County. It's the second most populous city in North Carolina after Charlotte. It is also the 10th most populous city in the Southeast and the 41st most populous city in all of the United States. Now, Raleigh is actually an early example in the U.S. of a planned city. So following the American Revolutionary War, when the U.S. gained independence, the area was chosen as the site for the state capital in 1788, and it was actually incorporated in 1792 as such. The city was originally laid out in a grid pattern, where the North Carolina state capital was at the center in Union Square. Now, during the American Civil War, North Carolina seceded, but the city itself was spared from any significant battles, and it fell to the Union in the closing days of the war. It did struggle with the economic hardships in the post-war period related to reconstruction of labor markets and over-reliance on agriculture and the typical social unrest of the Reconstruction era. Now, according to the Federal Bureau of Investigation's Uniform Crime Reports, in 2019, the Raleigh Police Department and other agencies in the city reported 1,222 incidents of violent crime and 8,520 incidences of property crime. Both of these are really, really far below the national average and the North Carolina average. As far as famous people that come from Raleigh, it's there's a lot. But I'll give you two that are pretty well known. One is the former, and I suppose disgraced, Olympian Marion Jones. And the other is President Andrew Johnson, actually. So there we go. We have a couple of uh, famous Raleighans today. But I suspect this isn't what you're wanting to talk to us about. No. Today we look at the case of Kathy Arnold Taft. She was born on August 24th, 1947 in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. She was raised in Kinston, North Carolina and graduated from Granger High School. Spent many years as a public health educator in Raleigh and Greenville in North Carolina. In 1981, Taft graduated from East Carolina University with a Bachelor of Science degree in education. She was vice chairperson of the Pitt County Board of Education in Greenville and was founding member of Pitt County Communities and Schools. She served on the Board of Governors of the Governor's School of North Carolina from 1986 to 1992. In 1995, Taft was appointed by Governor Jim Hunt to the State Board of Education. She was a guardian ad litem volunteer, member of the East Carolina Women's Roundtable, an Educators Hall of Fame inductee, and was honored by the Order of the Cupola. Taft was also a devoted mother to four children and had five grandsons. 
She was considered the glue that kept the family together. Taft, age 62, was scheduled to have surgery in March of 2010 and needed a place to recover and some assistance. So she went to Raleigh to stay with her sister, Dina Holton, at Taft's boyfriend's house, John Guile, who was out of town. Taft and Holton had a rocky relationship, and Taft hoped to have some bonding time together while she recovered. Taft had surgery on March 5, 2010, and once she was home, she went to bed, falling into a deep sleep. Holton heard some noises in the night and went to check on the house. She walked to Taft's room and could hear her breathing, but didn't go inside. The next day, Holton called 911, saying there's blood everywhere. Taft was unconscious, and originally first responders thought they were going to encounter some type of medical emergency due to the surgery at the resident. She was rushed to the hospital, all the while it being unknown what had happened to her. Not long after her arrival at the hospital, however, staff realized that Taft had suffered several blows to the head and had severe lacerations. She slipped into a coma soon after. Holton was questioned at the hospital and gave inconsistent statements to the police. They found her story odd since she was in the house but didn't hear the attack. Soon, she stopped cooperating with the detectives altogether. Investigators did a forensic search of the house, collecting DNA evidence and noting that Taft's panties were missing, both from when she was brought into the hospital and from her bag of clean clothes. A sexual assault examination concluded that she had been raped. The focus of the investigation shifted from Dina to men from there. So, basically what happens and what Rebel's describing, the police would have given what's called a, a rape kit. Now, you may have heard of the term rape kit to refer to a sexual assault forensics exam, but the term actually does refer to a kit itself that they keep. It includes a checklist of materials and instructions, along with envelopes and containers to package any specimens collected during the exam. It is often also referred to as a sexual assault evidence kit. Now, the contents of the kit do vary by state and jurisdiction, but typically they include like bags and paper sheets for evidence collections, a fine comb, documentation forms, envelopes, instructions, materials for blood samples, and swabs. Now, in this case, it's a bit different because it was a body. Well, it was an unconscious person at the time. So... But typically things that you want to avoid are like bathing, showering, using the restroom, changing clothes, combing your hair, cleaning up the area. Now, naturally, some that it's, it's a natural thing to want to put your world back in order. So it's kind of important that victims understand this. Again, in this case, it, it is a bit different, but that's the kind of kit that they would have used on her. And in this case, it collected the DNA evidence that they needed. So yes. what happened to Taft after that? So three days later, Taft was declared brain dead. Life support was withdrawn and she passed away. The case officially became a homicide investigation. They began processing the DNA from the rape kit and began investigating men in Taft's life, such as her on-again, off-again boyfriend, John Guile, who came in for an interview. He stated he had offered to let her stay at the house for her recovery and that he had been in Florida dealing with his recently deceased mother's estate. The investigators were able to verify his alibi, and he was eliminated as a suspect. The area where Taft was staying was a quiet neighborhood with a low crime rate. During the police investigation, they discovered that there had recently been an attempted break-in at a nearby house, which had occurred the same night as Taft's assault. They took fingerprints and DNA evidence from that crime as well in an effort to tie the two cases together, but were unsuccessful. 
Police obtained DNA samples from the men in the family and anyone close to Taft. Two weeks later, those did not come back as a match to anyone. Police then canvassed the neighborhood and obtained as many DNA swabs from men as they could. Most of the neighbors were kind and welcoming to the investigators. Then they came to the apartment of unemployed musician Jason Williford, who stepped outside of his home and did not invite the police inside. When asked for a DNA sample, he denied them. The investigator returned to the office and did a background check on Williford. He had two prior burglary charges where he'd break into unoccupied homes and use their cable TV to rent X-rated films. Police asked the fugitive unit to follow Williford and assess his behaviors and look for an opportunity to collect DNA evidence from him without his knowledge. It took two days of following him, but one day he threw out a cigarette butt into the parking lot where he lived. All right, so this has been kind of an area of contention because some people do feel that it is a violation of a person's constitutional rights because normally to collect DNA, a warrant or verbal or written consent is needed. And important to note that that consent can also be withdrawn. So law enforcement, however, is able to collect DNA samples from discarded items because they're no longer considered the property of the suspect. And DNA, like a fingerprint or a blood sample or hair, is considered non-testimonial evidence. So the Supreme Court actually did have to make a ruling that there is no violation of the Fifth Amendment privilege compelled against self-incrimination as long as DNA is lawfully seized. In this case, he threw away a cigarette butt. He has discarded this item. It is no longer in his possession. It is no longer his property. So therefore, the police are not doing anything illegal by picking it up and then having it tested. We've seen this happen many other times. In fact, we discussed it on this podcast at one point where someone had eaten or drank something and then the police were able to gather DNA evidence from that as well. So while for some people it's kind of a no-go thing, the police in this instance did act within their within their powers. They weren't they weren't abusing anything legally per se. So did they get any results from this cigarette butt by any chance? They took the cigarette butt to the lab and had results the next day. Williford's DNA was a match to the attack on Taft. Police approached Williford at, the, at a campground near a lake and arrested him for the rape and murder of Kathy Taft. At first, he refused to talk to police. However, he was interviewed several times by psychologists. He told his psychiatrist that that night he'd gone for a walk and went to a house that he thought was vacant but wasn't able to get inside. He then went to the Guile home and jimmied the front door lock to gain access, all while wearing socks on his hands to avoid fingerprint evidence. Once he was inside, Williford realized there was someone inside the house. He stated he wasn't really aware of what happened after, but that he had hit Taft in the head with a rock that he had carried inside with him and raped her. Then he walked home and went to bed. Police searched his home and were unable to recover the socks or the rock. They also never recovered the missing panties. Before trial, Williford moved to suppress the cigarette butt into evidence as he claimed he had a reasonable right to privacy on the property. However, since this had been an apartment complex and not his own private driveway, the court rejected the appeal. Williford was charged with first-degree murder, first-degree rape, and non-felonious breaking and entering. Williford's defense attorneys urged jurors to return a second-degree murder verdict, 
stating that he had been on drugs and alcohol and had mental illnesses. They stated he did not plan the crime or fully realize the consequences of his actions. However, prosecutors argued that he knew what he was doing when he broke into the house. All right. So what we're talking about here is diminished capacity. Now, the term diminished capacity occasionally comes up in the world of forensic psychology. It doesn't get as much attention as not guilty by reason of insanity, but it it's still an important psycholegal construct that forensic psychologists can evaluate for. So the diminished capacity plea is based on the belief that certain people, because of mental impairment or disease, are simply incapable of reaching the mental state required to commit a crime. Now, this most often comes up in murder cases where the defense is trying to get a murder charge reduced to manslaughter. An example of murder versus manslaughter, a diminished capacity defense argues that the defendant is incapable of intending to cause a death, so they must have at most caused the death recklessly. Unlike not guilty by reason of insanity, the defendant isn't saying that they are not guilty. They are stating that they are guilty, but because of the mental impairment or disease, that they are incapable of reaching the mental state required to commit a crime. So a successful plea of diminished capacity in a murder trial would likely result in the charge being reduced to manslaughter, which isn't even what they were trying to get here. They were trying to get a second degree murder. But I mean, you very rarely see this work for a drug charge, to be honest. So. Right. So what did the jury decide? The jurors came back with guilty verdicts on all counts and Williford was sentenced to life in prison. The family asked that any memorial contributions be made to the Kathy A. Taft Scholarship for Female Undergraduate in Education Policy UNC School of Education Foundation, and we'll list that information in the show notes if you choose to donate where they can be donated to. Excellent. It is a good cause, and if you find yourself feeling extra generous, that's a good place to send it. So please visit the website, check out our show notes. All the information will be there. This case was was an interesting one for both of us. Mm-hmm. There's not as much information out there about this case as some of the ones we've covered. But truthfully that that's kind of what hits home to us a bit more. These victims that wouldn't normally be highlighted that normally wouldn't be be thought of. We don't so much it's easy to be fascinated by the the criminal or the perpetrator. But in this case, you had a very fine and upstanding woman who was quite literally just in the wrong place at the wrong time. And her family has very much wanted to continue on her legacy with the charity that they have created in her name. So mm-hmm. I feel... That even though there might not be as much shock value in this case, that it's no less important. So right, and really, it did rock the community. You know, the community that it in at large because it was such an unexpected thing to happen to her. Absolutely, and she is an official. I mean, she's incredibly well known. What accolades, whatnot, like this. For whatever reason, a lot of times when it's a public figure, things do tend to be more shocking, I suppose. Whether mm-hmm. that's right or wrong or indifferent isn't isn't really the point. It, it just kind of is. But again, in this case, this woman 
she's just trying to recover from surgery in a in what she thought was going to be a safe environment and by all accounts it should have been so right but hopefully you know the the family has gotten to see some positives coming from the charity uh it will never replace this awesome lady but you know we can we can hope that at least something good does does happen right well, I think that that brings us to this week's missing persons case. Yes. So who is the missing person this week, Rebel? So this week we look at Diane Bignell, age 60, who went missing on May 17th, 2018. She would do anything for her friends. She loved soap operas, doing word puzzles, and making bannock. She was last seen on her birthday, which was May 17th, 2018, she was visiting her cousin in the morning, and she went to Thompson, Manitoba, Canada to visit friends. She was last seen around 8.30 a.m. on Juniper Street and reported missing two days later. Bignell shared an apartment with her brother, but would always let him know if she was not going to be home. Rumors were that she had been seen with a man from Selkirk, but this was unconfirmed. She has black and gray shoulder-length hair, brown eyes, and walks with Olympus. She has reportedly bad knees and a bad hip. She is diabetic with a heavier build. She's five foot two to five foot six inches tall, 141 to 175 pounds, and is in First Nations. Bignell was last seen wearing her prescription glasses, royal blue pants with white stripes, and gray running shoes. She was also seen wearing a dark gray or black coat, which was later found near the Burntwood River at the end of June of 2018 and prompted a river drag that yielded no results. If you have any information about Diane Bignell, please contact the Thompson RCMP at 204-983-5461, referencing case 2018-685840. You can call Crime Stoppers or submit a tip electronically via the Canadian Crime Stoppers website or via email to the National Center for Missing Persons and Unidentified Remains, which we'll put both of those links in the show notes. Well, excellent. Well, Rebel, this was a... This was definitely a set of cases that are both dealing with older women, mm-hmm. both both tragic, truly. Hopefully, this this lady, Mrs. Bignall, she can be found and brought back to to her friends. Going missing on your birthday is just that that adds another level of of sadness to it. I feel it but does. With, with with her with her health ailments and whatnot um please if you guys do know anything have any idea of what could be happening go to the websites that we provided in the show notes make a phone call anything anything helps so let's 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 keep her from being another case on our show yes well rebel i think that brings us to the end of this episode but if we have any Listeners out there who want to tell their friends and family where they can hear us, where should they tell them to go? So we're on Podbean, as well as most of the major podcast platforms, so Amazon, Spotify, Apple, etc. We can always be found on social media as Murderosity or Murderosity Podcast. And we're always looking for new tips and stories. So if you'd like to submit one, then you can reach us at murderosity at gmail.com. And we do read all your emails, all your comments. They do mean a lot to us. 
We talk about them all week long. Believe me, dear listener, we do. So we'd love to hear from you. And for example, this episode itself was one that was brought to our attention by one of our faithful listeners. So yes. go ahead, write us, leave us a comment, like and subscribe. It, it definitely helps us out. And I think that's going to do it for this week, Rebel. Yes, absolutely. All right. Well, you guys stay safe out there and we'll catch you next time.